scientific study had shown that laughter is connected to our immune system. Laughter actually affects our hormones and our white cell counts. Laughter even raises the level of pain tolerance. And I just thought about this for a minute, and then I said, you know, all the scientists need to do is to go 3,000 years ago and read Proverbs 17:22. And here's what the Word of God said 3,000 years ago. Laughter does the heart good like a medicine, but a broken spirit makes the body sick. I think of all the people in the world that ought to be joyful all the time, regardless of the circumstances, are the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And yet, I think the reason why we're not joyful and we easily lose our joy is because we take ourselves too seriously. We really do. That's part of the problem. A number of years ago, I was being interviewed by phone, and the writer is writing an article in a, one of those pastoral leadership magazines. And, and in the end, he said, well, do you have anything to say to young pastors? And I thought about it for a few seconds, and I kind of came up. I said, yeah, I have something really, really deep theological advice that I want to give to them. He said, oh, yeah, what is it? I'm writing. I'm writing. I said, yeah. Take your call very seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. I find that the reason I'm always entertained is because I laugh at myself. Sometimes I'm standing here and I'm the only one who's laughing. And you're all kind of looking at me and say, what is he laughing at? I'm laughing at myself. Now, if you read Psalm 126, it says that laughter is indeed a gift from God and it is connected to the song of praise. As a matter of fact, there are four times that the Bible said, God laughs. God laughs. Psalm 2, verse 4, and Psalm 37, 13, Psalm 59, 8, and Proverbs 1, 26. And every time you read that God laughs is when man, and particularly wicked men, think that they're in charge and they're running things. God sits in heaven and says, ha, 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 ha. Take a laugh. Go ahead and laugh. Just laugh with God. You see, there is no doubt in my mind that joy for the believer comes from living day in and day out with the eternal perspective. It really does. I'm going to show you in a minute. Because that's really what distinguishes us from the secular world, from secular society. The word secular means this life. They are focusing on this life. They are focusing on what's happening in the news, what is happening to the economy, what is happening to the government and the politics. and Everything is focused on this life. Now, I'm not saying you need to check out of this life. I'm not saying that. You can see what's going on, but you still have the eternal perspective. And I'm going to tell you, this world is filled with hatred and anger and bitterness and fear and worry and anxiety, and I refuse to be part of that. Amen? Amen. Well, some of you don't want to be part of that too. (laughs) Because if we fall for that, what difference between us and the people of the world? What difference? We're just like them. I was looking in my files last week, and I was going through some of the files, and I came across something that I wrote 20 years ago. If you ever want to lose your joy, these 10 things will guarantee you loss of joy and misery. 
Okay, number one, make little things bother you. Now, don't just let them, make them. (laughs) Secondly, lose your eternal perspective. And I'm not saying just for a few moments or for a few hours when you're facing some problem. I'm talking about lose your eternal perspective and keep it lost. Third, get yourself a good worry. Now, one about with which you can do nothing except worry. That will help you. Be a perfectionist. I mean, condemn yourself and everybody else who cannot attain perfection. Number five, be right. Always right. All the time right. That will turn your home into figure it out. Number six, don't trust or believe people or accept them at anything but their worst and their weaknesses. Number seven, always compare yourself unfavorably with others. This is sure will give you misery. Number eight, take personally everything that happens to you that you don't like. Take it all personally. Number nine, don't give yourself wholeheartedly to anyone or anything. Just close up. And here's the Lulu of them all, number ten. Make happiness to be the aim of your life. Instead of being filled with joy of the Lord that comes from praise and thanksgiving, make happiness to be your goal. If you pursue happiness, happiness is like a bar of wet soap. Have you ever tried to grab hard on a bar of wet soap and gets away from you? That's happiness. But that's different from joy. If you want joy unspeakable, and you want the joy to stay with you, I want you to turn with me, please, to Genesis 21. I'm going to show it to you in those first seven verses. Because here you're going to discover that counting stars, when you see none, the count begin with what? One. And that's here, we find it here. And we have been seeing this story of the life of Abraham, that Abraham was a man to whom God said, Look up to the heavens, and you start counting stars. In the Middle East, when the desert where you look up at night, you can see the stars with clarity, not like in the cities here. And he said, you start counting, and that's how many descendants you'll have. Now, of course, he was talking about spiritual descendants that come through Jesus Christ, because Paul said that's the blessing of Abraham came through a seed that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Abraham looks up to heaven and starts counting. One, two, three, four, five, one million, one million and one, one million and two, and then he loses count. Go back and start counting again. And he was doing that for between 25 to 30 years. And finally, at this point of his life, when he's 100 and Sarah is 90, they get star number one. (laughs) And they named him Isaac, which means laughter. That's what it means. But the one thing I couldn't get out of my head for over a week as I'm praying and thinking and reflecting on this passage, the one thing I could not help but find it here, the graciousness of our God. It is absolutely mind-boggling because the Lord takes Sarah's laughter of disbelief 
and he changes it and gives her a laughter of joy. He takes her laughter of being incredulous, and he turns it into the laughter of the indescribable. He takes her laughter of sarcasm, and he gives her the laughter of salvation. What a God we worship. What a God we worship. What a great God we have. After all of the waiting, finally, a son of promise comes, has been born, and his name is Laughter. Sarah could have sung Psalm 126, verses 1 and 2, except it was not written yet. It was written 3,000 years later. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. I think Sarah would have paraphrased that. And Sarah would have sang, while the Lord brought back fertility to my old body, I was like one who's dreaming. My mouth was filled with laughter and my tongue with a song of joy. But that's what Sarah said. She said, the Lord has brought me laughter. But he did not bring laughter only to her. He brought laughter to generations and generations and generations and generations to come who are going to read the story of Sarah, and they will laugh. But there's something here I don't want you to miss. Don't don't miss that. The reason for joyful laughter in Sarah and Abraham's life, sure, the birth of Isaac, I wouldn't minimize that whatsoever, but I genuinely believe that the real joy that has come into their heart is their delight in the Lord. Question, what lessons did Abraham and Sarah learn through these 25, 30 years of waiting? What lessons can you and I learn from this? What God had done will cause generations to come to trust in the faithfulness of God. And here we are, 4,000 years later, we are reading and we are encouraged about the faithfulness of God. We can read of how, in spite of their doubt, in spite of their partial belief, in spite of their taking matters into their own hands, in spite of the fact that they thought they can help God out, in spite of the… Only a year early they were distrusting in the promise, and yet… They learned the important lessons, and they are three in number. I want to share them with you. First of all, they learned that God always keeps His Word. Can you say, keeps His Word? Always keeps His Word. And that's why I told you in the last message that you must never, ever, ever give up praying for an unsaved family member. Must never give up. I can never forget, uh, some 20 years ago, I was praying with a 63-year-old man. I led him to the Lord, and, uh, literally on the floor of my office, and, and we were kneeling there and praying. And, and the one thing that he just kept sobbing and sobbing and sobbing, he said, you know, I know my mother prayed for my salvation all the years of her life, all the years of my life, until she died and went to be with the Lord. Why did I have to wait such time? Trust the Lord. I pray that if you're praying for an unsaved family member, that you'll see it in your lifetime. But even if you don't see it in your lifetime, God is going to keep His Word. He does what? Keeps His Word all the time. 
Secondly, Abraham and Sarah learned that God is a powerful God. God is a mighty God. He's Al Shaddai. Nothing is impossible with God. Can you say that with me? Nothing is impossible with God. For emphasis at the supernatural power of God that worked and and brought about star number one, for emphasis, it is repeated three times in seven verses. Three times, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 7. As if to say, don't ever forget this lesson. What is impossible for man is possible with God. But some of you probably say, well, Michael, I understand that. It's in the Bible, and I believe the Bible, but you don't understand, Michael. My situation is different. You don't understand. My problem is huge. You don't understand. My opposition is so strong. You don't understand. It is too late for me. I'm too old, or I'm too young, and I'm too this, and I'm too the other thing. Our God is the God of the impossible. Sarah not only given the strength to conceive a baby. <laughs> this is the amazing part. She was given the strength to nurse the baby. Now, I'm not saying God is going to do that for you if you're 90 years old. You don't want that anyway. <laughs> you don't want that at 60. <laughs> but this is a unique situation. But the lesson is the same. The lesson is the same. And not only that, she was given the supernatural strength to nurse the baby. Abraham, his body was so rejuvenated, so renewed by the power of El Shaddai, that he fathered six more children after Sarah died than he married Keturah. How do you like them apples? (laughs) Now, when God miraculously healed, it is not a partial healing. When God miraculously heals, it is complete. It's instant restoration. When God calls you to a task, He will equip you to the task to perform it. The third lesson Abraham and Sarah have learned, and we should learn, is that God in no hurry to carry out His promise. Now, this is a bugaboo to a lot of Christians. Am I right? Yeah. I know it is. Because I know this is my life. He rather, as the Bible said, makes all things beautiful in His time. I know, and you know, that one of the hardest things we face in life is what seems to be God's delay. And I've been saying throughout this series of messages, God's delay does not mean denial. The Word of God is true whether you experience it or not. The Word of God is true whether you believe it or not. But I think most of us can testify to the fact, to the difficulty of dealing with God's delays. You see, when we pray and God delays and His answer doesn't come immediately, we fume, we fuss, and we fret. And sometimes we're tempted to answer our own prayers. (laughs) We've seen it here. Abraham and Sarah learned to trust God while they're waiting. But there is a far bigger picture here than even those magnificent lessons that they learned and we are learning. There's a far greater picture. Isaac's birth to Abraham and Sarah brought them delight, taught them three things about God. But there's even more what the kids would call humongous (laughs) picture beyond that. This is far bigger and far greater, and is beyond the birth of Isaac, the son of promise. The birth of Isaac 
is a foreshadowing of another supernatural birth. The birth that would take place 2,000 years after Isaac. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' birth. And it will become actually clearer in the next message. You see, when God saved Isaac from sacrifice, and Abraham said, Yahweh Yara, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. He was saying that God will provide himself the sacrifice. Indeed, he was prophesying of the coming of Jesus. We'll see that in the next message. And that is why Jesus said to those hard-headed Pharisees, he said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, and they want to kill him. What do you mean? You're not even 50 years old. Can you say, Abraham saw your day? (laughs) If you look closely at Isaac, you will find him prefiguring of Jesus in many points. And I want to just share seven of them. Seven similarities between the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jesus. First, Isaac and Jesus were sons of promise. In Genesis 3.15, God said to Adam and Eve that He's going to send His Son, and He's going to come, and He's going to crush the serpent's head. That was the first promise about the coming of Jesus. And God affirmed it again and again and again in the pages of the Scripture until you come to Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And here's what God said, the virgin will be with child and call his name Emmanuel. This promise from God of the birth of the coming son, Jesus, was affirmed hundreds of times, as I said, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The second commonality between Isaac and Jesus is the period of delay between the time they were promised and the time actually took place. Now, in the case of Isaac, it was 25, 30 years. In the case of Jesus, the delay was thousands of years. The third commonality between Isaac and Jesus is that when Sarah asked in chapter 18, verse 13, will I really have a child at my old age? Verse 14 answers that God said, is anything impossible for God? At the birth of Jesus, Mary, who had far greater faith than that of Sarah, when she asked in Luke 1.34, how can that be? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. Verse 37 of Luke 1, the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. Let's say that again. Nothing is impossible with God. And the fourth similarity is this. The names of both Isaac and Jesus were symbolic. They were symbolic. They were given these names by God Himself. He's the one who named them before either were born. God told Abraham, you shall call his name Isaac. In Matthew 1.21, God said to Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name is Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. And the fifth similarity, both birth occurred at the appointed time. At the appointed time. This probably is the most stunning similarity of all. Like the birth of Isaac, Jesus' birth was exactly on God's schedule. Not too early and not too late. Sixth similarity between Isaac and Jesus is that both 
were regarded as miraculous birth. Now, of course, the miracle of Jesus' birth is far greater because it did not require a man at all. But that is expected because the shadow is not greater than the real. The real person is greater than its shadow. And therefore, Isaac was a shadow, but the greater is the real thing, and that's Jesus. Finally, the seventh is that matter of joy. To be sure, the birth of any child, they bring joy to the family, they bring joy to the community, bring joy to the relatives. But the joy of Abraham and Sarah continued from generation to generation to generation. In Mary's case, her unspeakable joy is your joy. It's my joy. It's the joy of millions of people around the world who come to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke 1, 46, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Here's that rejoicing again. But think with me. Think with me just for a minute, okay? The birth of Jesus and the joy of Mary and Joseph had nothing to do with the surrounding circumstances. In fact, if they were dependent on the surrounding circumstances, they would have been miserable, not rejoicing. Oh, you know the story as well as I do. Pregnant? No father? Back then, you'll get stoned. Outward circumstances? Oh, miserable. Pregnant in a strange part of the country? No place to have the baby? Going from door to door looking for a place? All of these difficult outward circumstances could have stolen their joy. Oh, but it didn't. They didn't. Beloved, listen to me. In the same way for all of us who are saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, only saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have inner joy regardless of our circumstances. We have inner peace regardless of our surroundings. We have inner contentment regardless of the events in life. Can I get a witness? The question is, do you have joy? Have you lost your joy? If you've never found joy. If there are seven similarities between Isaac, the birth of Isaac, and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe there are four similarities between Isaac's birth and our rebirth, our being born again, our spiritual birth. I pray to God if there's one single soul here who has not been born again today will be the day. The similarities, four in number. Number one, the birth of Isaac was humanly impossible. The bodies of Abraham and Sarah, for all intents and purposes, were dead. Though they are living, but their bodies were dead. And that's precisely what we were before our hearts were invigorated, regenerated, and the Holy Spirit awakened us to the desperate need for salvation. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our sin, and it had to take a supernatural intervention of God to wake us up. We could no more rise ourselves to rebirth and to a new life and be saved than Sarah could have naturally born Isaac. 
Both needed supernatural intervention. And that is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you will not see heaven. (laughs) That's the bottom line. You could be in church all of your life. If you're not born again, you will not go to heaven. But if you're born of the Spirit of God, it is supernatural. Secondly, the second similarity between Isaac's miraculous birth and our supernatural spiritual birth is faith. The Bible said Abraham believed God and was counted to him righteousness. And when you and I are raised spiritually to life, we placed our whole trust, we placed our faith in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. We were spiritually reborn. And the third similarity here. We see again clearly in Romans chapter 4, between Isaac's birth and our spiritual birth, it was so that God may get all of the glory, all of the glory. In our spiritual rebirth, it is not of good works, good as that may be. It is not by good works that we are saved. Why? Lest we get the glory. Through faith alone, we're saved, lest anyone take the credit. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29, Paul said, God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast. Fourth and the final similarity between Isaac's birth and our spiritual rebirth. You see it again in Romans 4 that even the events of the life of Abraham were not written for him alone. They were written for us so that we may come to believe and receive the righteousness of God, just as he believed and received the righteousness of God. Abraham received a miracle, and there's only a miracle that will bring about a spiritual birth. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.